Part two, chapter four of Lady Byron Vindicated A History of the Byron Controversy by Harriet Beecher Stowe. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter four The Character of the Two Witnesses Compared. It will be observed that in this controversy we are confronting two opposing stories one of lord and the other of lady byron and the statements from each are in point-blank contradiction lord byron states that his wife deserted him lady byron states that he expelled her and reminds him in her letter to augusta lee that the expulsion was a deliberate one and that he had purposed it from the beginning of their marriage lord byron always stated that he was ignorant why his wife left him and was desirous of her return lady byron states that he told her he would force her to leave him and to leave him in such a way that the whole blame of the separation should always rest on her and not on him to say nothing of any deeper or darker accusations on either side here in the very outworks of the story the two meet point blank in considering two opposing stories we always as a matter of fact take into account the character of the witnesses if a person be literal and exact in his usual modes of speech reserved careful conscientious and in the habit of observing minutely the minor details of time place and circumstances we give weight to his testimony from these considerations but if a person be proved to have singular or exceptional principles with regard to truth if he be universally held by society to be so in the habit of mystification that large allowances must be made for his statements if his assertions at one time contradict those made at another and if his statements also sometimes come in collision with those of his best friends so that when his language is reported difficulties follow and explanations are made necessary all this certainly disqualifies him from being considered a trustworthy witness all these disqualifications belong in a remarkable degree to lord byron on the oft-repeated testimony of his best friends we shall first cite the following testimony given in an article from under the crown which is written by an early friend and ardent admirer of lord byron Quote, byron had one pre-eminent fault a fault which must be considered as deeply criminal by every one who does not as i do believe it to have resulted from monomania he had a morbid love of a bad reputation there was hardly an offence of which he would not with perfect indifference accuse himself an old schoolfellow who met him on the continent told me that he would continually write paragraphs against himself in the foreign journals and delight in their republication by the english newspapers as in the success of a practical joke whenever anybody has related anything discreditable of byron assuring me that it must be true for he heard it from himself i have always felt that he could not have spoken upon worse authority and that in all probability the tale was a pure invention if i could remember and were willing to repeat the various misdoings which i have from time to time heard him attribute to himself i could fill a volume but i never believed them i very soon became aware of this strange idiosyncrasy it puzzled me to account for it but there it was a sort of diseased and distorted vanity 
the same eccentric spirit would induce him to report things which were false with regard to his family which anybody else would have concealed though true he told me more than once that his father was insane and killed himself i shall never forget the manner in which he first told me this while washing his hands and singing a gay neapolitan air he stopped looked round at me and said there always was madness in the family then after continuing his washing and his song he added as if speaking of a matter of the slightest indifference my father cut his throat the contrast between the tenor of the subject and the levity of the expression was fearfully painful it was like a stanza of don juan in this instance i had no doubt that the fact was as he related it but in speaking of it only a few years since to an old lady in whom i had the perfect confidence she assured me that it was not so mr byron who was her cousin had been extremely wild but was quite sane and had died very quietly in his bed what byron's reason could have been for thus calumniating not only himself but the blood which was flowing in his veins who can divine but for some reason or other it seemed to be his determined purpose to keep himself unknown to the great body of his fellow-creatures to present himself to their view in moral masquerade End quote. certainly the character of lord byron here given by his friend is not the kind to make him a trustworthy witness in any case on the contrary it seems to show either a subtle delight in falsehood for falsehood's sake or else the wary artifices of a man who having a deadly secret to conceal employs many turnings and windings to throw the world off the scent what intriguer having a crime to cover could devise a more artful course than to send half a dozen absurd stories to the press which should after a while be traced back to himself till the public should gradually look on all it heard from him as a result of this eccentric humour the easy trifling air with which lord byron made to this friend a false statement in regard to his father would lead naturally to the inquiry on what other subjects equally important to the good name of others he might give false testimony with equal indifference when medwin's conversations with lord byron were first published they contained a number of declarations of the noble lord affecting the honour and honesty of his friend and publisher murray these appear to have been made in the same way as those about his father and with equal indifference so serious were the charges that mr murray's friends felt that he ought in justice to himself to come forward and confront them with the facts as stated in byron's letters to himself and in volume ten page one forty three of murray's standard edition accordingly these false statements are confronted with the letters of lord byron the statements as reported are of a most material and vital nature relating to murray's financial honour and honesty and to his general truthfulness and sincerity in reply murray opposes to them the accounts of sums paid for different works and letters from byron exactly contradicting his own statements as to murray's character the subject as we have seen was discussed in the noctes no doubt appears to be entertained that byron made the statements to medwin and the theory of accounting for them is that byron was bamming him it seems never to have occurred to any of these credulous gentlemen who laughed at others for being bammed that byron might be doing the very same thing to themselves 
how many of his so-called packages sent to lady byron were real packages and how many were mystifications we find in two places at least in his memoir letters to lady byron written and shown to others which he says were never sent by him he told lady blessington that he was in the habit of writing to her constantly was this bamming was he bamming also when he told the world that lady byron suddenly deserted him quite to his surprise and that he never to his dying day could find out why lady blessington relates that in one of his conversations with her he entertained her by repeating epigrams and lampoons in which many of his friends were treated with severity she inquired of him in case he should die and such proofs of his friendship come before the public what would be the feelings of these friends who had supposed themselves to stand so high in his good graces she says quote, that said byron is precisely one of the ideas that most amuses me i often fancy the rage and humiliation of my quondam friends in hearing the truth at least from me for the first time and when i am beyond the reach of their malice what grief continued byron laughing could resist the charges of ugliness dullness or any of the thousand nameless defects personal or mental that flesh is heir to when reprisal or recantation was impossible people are in such daily habits of commenting on the defects of friends that they are unconscious of the unkindness of it now i write down as well as speak my sentiments of those who think they have gulled me and i only wish in case i die before them that i might return to witness the effects my posthumous opinions of them are likely to produce in their minds what good fun this would be you don't seem to value this as you ought said byron with one of his sardonic smiles seeing i looked as i really felt surprised at his avowed insincerity i feel the same pleasure in anticipating the rage and mortification of my soi-disant friends at the discovery of my real sentiments of them that a miser may be supposed to feel while making a will that will disappoint all the expectations that have been toadying him for years then how amusing it will be to compare my posthumous with my previously given opinions the one throwing ridicule on the other it is asserted in a note to the noctes that byron besides his autobiography prepared a voluminous dictionary of all his friends and acquaintances in which brief notes of their persons and character were given with his opinion of them it was not considered that the publication of this would add to the noble lord's popularity and it has never appeared in hunt's life of byron there is similar testimony speaking of byron's carelessness in exposing his friends secrets and showing or giving away their letters hunt says if his five hundred confidants by a reticence as remarkable as his laxity had not kept his secrets better than he did himself the very devil might have been played with i don't know how many people but there was always this saving reflection to be made that the man who could be guilty of such extravagances for the sake of making an impression might be guilty of exaggeration or inventing what astonished you and indeed though he was a speaker of the truth on ordinary occasions that is to say he did not tell you that he had seen a dozen horses when he had seen only two 
yet as he professed not to value the truth when in the way of his advantage and there was nothing he thought more to his advantage than making you stare at him the persons who were liable to suffer from his inconsistency had all the right in the world to the benefit of this consideration with a person of such mental and moral habits as to truth this inquiry always must be where does mystification end and truth begin if a man is careless about his father's reputation for sanity and reports him a crazy suicide if he gaily accuses his publisher and good friend of double dealing shuffling and dishonesty if he tells stories about mrs claremont to which his sister offers a public refutation is it to be supposed that he will always tell the truth about his wife when the world is pressing him hard and every instinct of self-defence is on the alert and then the ingenuity that could write and publish false documents about himself that they might reappear in london papers to what other accounts might it not be turned might it not create documents invent statements about his wife as well as himself the document so ostentatiously given by m g lewis for circulation among friends in england was a specimen of what the noctes club would call bamming if byron wanted a legal investigation why did he not take it in the first place instead of signing the separation if he wanted to cancel it as he said in this document why did he not go to london and enter a suit for the restitution of conjugal rights or a suit in chancery to get possession of his daughter that this was in his mind passages in medwin's conversations show he told lady blessington also that he might claim his daughter in chancery at any time why did he not do it either of these two steps would have brought on that public investigation he so longed for can it be possible that all the friends who passed this private document from hand to hand never suspected that they were being bammed by it but it has been universally assumed that though byron was thus remarkably given to mystification yet all his statements in regard to this story are to be accepted simply because he makes them why must we accept them any more than his statements as to murray are his own father so we constantly find lord byron's incidental statements coming in collision with those of others for example in his account of his marriage he tells medwin that lady byron's maid was put between his bride and himself on the same seat in the wedding journey the lady's maid herself mrs mims says she was sent before them to howe nabby and was there to receive them when they alighted he said of lady byron's mother she always detested me and had not the decency to conceal it in her own house dining with her one day i broke a tooth and was in great pain which i could not help showing it will do you good said lady noel i am glad of it lady byron says speaking of her mother she always treated him with an affectionate consideration and indulgence which extended to every little peculiarity of his feelings never did an irritating word escape her lord byron states that the correspondence between him and lady byron after his refusal was first opened by her lady byron's friends deny this statement and assert that the direct contrary is the fact 
thus we see that lord byron's statements are directly opposed to those of his family in relation to his father directly against murray's accounts and his own admission to murray directly against the statement of the lady's maid as to her position in the journey directly against mrs lee's as to mrs claremont and against lady byron as to her mother we can see also that these misstatements were so fully perceived by the men of his times that medwin's conversations were simply laughed at as an amusing instance of how far a man might be made the victim of a mystification christopher north thus sentences the book quote, i don't mean to call mr medwin a liar the captain lies sir but it is under a thousand mistakes whether byron bammed him or he by virtue of his own egregious stupidity was the sole and sufficient bamifier of himself i know not neither greatly do i care this much is certain that the book throughout is full of things that were not and most resplendently deficient of the things that were yet it is on medwin's conversations alone that many of the magazine assertions in regard to lady byron are founded it is on that authority that lady byron is accused of breaking open her husband's writing-desk in his absence and sending the letters she found there to the husband of a lady compromised by them and likewise that lord byron is declared to have paid back his wife's ten thousand pound wedding portion and doubled it moore makes no such statements and his remarks about lord byron's use of his wife's money are unmistakable evidence to the contrary moore although byron's ardent partisan was too well informed to make assertions with regard to him which at that time would have been perfectly easy to refute all these facts go to show that lord byron's character for accuracy or veracity was not such as to entitle him to ordinary confidence as a witness especially in a case where he had the strongest motives for misstatement and if we consider that the celebrated autobiography was the finished careful work of such a practised mystifier who can wonder that it presented a web of such intermingled truth and lies that there was no such thing as disentangling it and pointing out where falsehood ended and truth began but in regard to lady byron what has been the universal impression of the world it has been alleged against her that she was a precise straightforward woman so accustomed to plain literal dealings that she could not understand the various mystifications of her husband and from that cause arose her unhappiness byron speaks in the sketch of her peculiar truthfulness and even in the clytemnestra poem when accusing her of lying he speaks of her as departing from the early truth that was her proper praise lady byron's careful accuracy as to dates to time place and circumstances will probably be vouched for by all the very large number of persons whom the management of her extended property and her works of benevolence brought to act as co-operators or agents with her she was not a person in the habit of making exaggerated or ill-considered statements her published statement of eighteen thirty is clear exact accurate and perfectly intelligible the dates are carefully ascertained and stated the expressions are moderate and all the assertions firm and perfectly definite it therefore seems remarkable that the whole reasoning on this byron matter has generally been conducted by assuming all lord byron's statements to be true and requiring all lady byron's statements to be sustained by other evidence 
if lord byron asserts that his wife deserted him the assertion is accepted without proof but if lady byron asserts that he ordered her to leave that requires proof lady byron asserts that she took counsel on this order of lord byron with his family friends and physician under the idea that it originated in insanity the blackwood asks what family friends says it doesn't know of any and asks proof if lord byron asserts that he always longed for a public investigation of the charges against him the quarterly and blackwood quote the saying with ingenuous confidence they are obliged to admit that he refused to stand that public test that he signed the deed of separation rather than meet it they know also that he could have at any time instituted suits against lady byron that would have brought the whole matter into court and that he did not why did he not the quarterly simply intimates that such suits would have been unpleasant why on account of personal delicacy the man that wrote don juan and furnished the details of his wedding night held back from clearing his name by delicacy it is astonishing to what extent this controversy has consisted in simply repeating lord byron's assertions over and over again and calling the result proof now we propose a different course as lady byron is not stated by her warm admirers to have had any monomania for speaking untruths on the subject we rank her value as a witness at a higher rate than lord byron's she never accused her parents of madness or suicide merely to make a sensation never bammed an acquaintance by false statements concerning the commercial honor of any one with whom she was in business relations never wrote and sent to the press as a clever jest false statements about herself and never in any other ingenious way tampered with truth we therefore hold it to be a mere dictate of reason and common sense that in all cases where her statements conflict with her husband's hers are to be taken as the more trustworthy the london quarterly in a late article distinctly repudiates lady byron's statements as sources of evidence and throughout quotes statements of lord byron as if they had the force of self-evident propositions we consider such a course contrary to common sense as well as common good manners the state of the case is just this if lord byron did not make false statements on this subject it was certainly an exception to his usual course he certainly did make such on a great variety of other subjects by his own showing he had a peculiar pleasure in falsifying language and in misleading and betraying even his friends but if lady byron gave false witness upon this subject it was an exception to the whole course of her life the habits of her mind the government of her conduct her lifelong reputation all were those of a literal exact truthfulness the accusation of her being untruthful was first brought forward by her husband in the clytemnestra poem in the autumn of eighteen sixteen but it never was publicly circulated till after his death and it was first formally made the basis of a published attack on lady byron in the july blackwood of eighteen sixty nine up to that time we look in vain through current literature for any indications that the world regarded lady byron otherwise than as a cold careful prudent woman who made no assertions and had no confidants when she spoke in eighteen thirty it is perfectly evident that christopher north and his circle believed what she said though reproving her for saying it at all 
the quarterly goes on to heap up a number of vague assertions that lady byron about the time of her separation made a confidant of a young officer that she told the clergyman of ham of some trials with lord ockham and that she told stories of different things at different times all this is not proof it is mere assertion and assertion made to produce prejudice it is like raising a whirlwind of sand to blind the eyes that are looking for landmarks it is quite probable lady byron told different stories about lord byron at various times no woman could have a greater variety of stories to tell and no woman ever was so persecuted and pursued and harassed both by public literature and private friendship to say something she had plenty of causes for a separation without the fatal and final one in her conversations with lady anne bernard for example she gives reasons enough for a separation though none of them are the chief one it is not different stories but contradictory stories that must be relied on to disprove the credibility of a witness the quarterly has certainly told a great number of different stories stories which may prove as irreconcilable with each other as any attributed to lady byron but its denial of all weight to her testimony is simply begging the whole question under consideration a man gives testimony about the causes of a railroad accident being the only eye-witness the opposing counsel begs whatever else you do you will not admit that man's testimony you ask why has he ever been accused of want of veracity on other subjects no he has stood high as a man of probity and honor for years why then throw out his testimony because he lies in this instance says the adversary the testimony does not agree with this and that pardon me that is the very point in question say you we expect to prove that it does agree with this and that because certain letters of lady byron's do not agree with the quarterly's theory of the facts of the separation it at once assumes that she is an untruthful witness and proposes to throw out her evidence altogether we propose on the contrary to regard lady byron's evidence with all the attention due to the statement of a high-minded conscientious person never in any other case accused of violation of truth we also propose to show it to be in strict agreement with all well-authenticated facts and documents and we propose to treat lord byron's evidence as that of a man of great subtlety versed in mystification and delighting in it and who on many other subjects not only deceived but gloried in deception and then we propose to show that it contradicts well-established facts and received documents one thing more we have to say concerning the laws of evidence in regard to documents presented in this investigation this is not a london west end affair but a grave historical inquiry in which the whole english-speaking world are interested to know the truth as it is now too late to have the securities of a legal trial certainly the rules of historical evidence should be strictly observed all important documents should be presented in an entire state with a plain and open account of their history who had them where they were found and how preserved there have been most excellent credible and authentic documents produced in this case and as a specimen of them we shall mention lord lindsay's letter and the journal and letter it authenticates 
lord lindsay at once comes forward gives his name boldly gives the history of the papers he produces shows how they came to be in his hands why never produced before and why now we feel confidence at once but in regard to the important series of letters presented as lady byron's this obviously proper course has not been pursued though assumed to be of the most critical importance no such distinct history of them was given in the first instance the want of such evidence being noticed by other papers the quarterly appears hurt that the high character of the magazine has not been a sufficient guarantee and still deals in vague statements that the letters have been freely circulated and that two noblemen of the highest character would vouch for them if necessary in our view it is necessary these noblemen should imitate lord lindsay's example give a fair account of these letters under their own names and then we would add it is needful for complete satisfaction to have the letters entire and not in fragments the quarterly gave these letters with the evident implication that they are entirely destructive to lady byron's character as a witness now has that magazine much reason to be hurt at even an insinuation on its own character when making such deadly assaults on that of another the individuals who bring forth documents that they suppose to be deadly to the character of a noble person always in her generation held to be eminent for virtue certainly should not murmur at being called upon to substantiate these documents in the manner usually expected in historical investigation we have shown that these letters do not contradict but that they perfectly confirm the facts and agree with the dates in lady byron's published statements of eighteen thirty and this is our reason for deeming them authentic these considerations with regard to the manner of conducting the inquiry seem so obviously proper that we cannot but believe that they will command a serious attention this ends part two chapter four the character of the two witnesses compared read for you by michelle fry baton rouge louisiana